0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Natalia shpilova said I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Anna Wuligala, Maghazata Lukyanov, Zabina Ruterin, and Marta Havryshko, editors and contributors of No Neighbors Land in Post-War Europe, Vanishing Others, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2023. Hello uh, everyone, welcome, congratulations on this volume and maybe we can start with you mentioning just a few words about your contribution to this volume.
2: Uh, thank you for the invitation, Natalia, uh, we are pleased to be here. Uh, my name is Anna vlagawa and um, I'm sociologist, um, although I think that uh, more often and more often I'm working in the field of social history rather than in memory studies uh, where my uh, academic uh, work started and I'm I'm co-editor of this book uh, and uh, one of the contributors uh, and uh, my, my affiliation is the Institute of uh, Philosophy and Sociology of Polish Academy of Sciences and I think that that this is where the idea of the book was born because it was born during the conference that i organized with małgorzata hukianov and marta and zabine participated uh yeah so uh, the the title of the conference the, the the basic theme of the conference was also no neighbors land and that was where the idea started and my own contribution to the book is about changing economy how the how the genocide deportations and all these bad things that happened in eastern and central europe changed the economy also in micro scale
1: thank you anna
3: yes my name is uh, sabine ruta thank you for your kind invitation to speak about our book i'm a co-editor of uh, no neighbors lands together with anna and uh, margot jata Um, I am presently interim professor of global history at the University of Potsdam, um, which is a term that ends uh, in September when I go back full time to my institute, which is the Institute for East and uh, Southeast European Studies in Regensburg in Germany. Um, And yes, uh, the the conference that uh, Anna just mentioned, um, she invited me. Because when she was a guest fellow in Regensburg at my institute, uh, we happened to talk about her project, and I talked to her about this film that I ended up writing my chapter about, which is about um, a film on Piran, a small ta- coastal town in Istria, So, um, which is a town that was emptied as a consequence of the Second World War, and the film deals exactly with the topic of our book. Um yeah, and so I went to Warsaw, participated in the conference, um, and here we are doing a book together, which was a very, very nice thing to happen.
1: Wonderful, yes. wonderful. Thank you, Sabina.
2: If I can just add something, I really remember this moment when I'm sitting in my tiny apartment uh, in Regensburg and, and watching this movie, and I'm just discovering that, wow, it's all about Ukraine also. It's also about Poland. I mean, I, I remember uh, my kind of feeling of surprise when that it's all that there are so many interconnections between what happened after the war in Italy and in, uh, in the Balkans and in Ukraine, which is my field of interest and in Poland. And this is how it all, how it all began.
1: Mm, amazing.
0: <clears throat> Hello, thank you for having us um, here. Uh, Today, my name is Bogorzata Łukianow, and I used to work um, at the Institute of Philosophy and Sociology of the Polish Academy of Sciences. Now I work at the University of Warsaw uh, in the Center for Research for um, Social Memory, and I'm also the uh, co-editor of of this um, book. Um, And my contribution is about um, remembering violence, the violence that was committed by one's um own group and I'm comparing um the case, one um one case from Poland and one from um Ukraine um and this is also the result of the research project that um was going on also before the conference that um um that I could um, work um work in with with Anna who was the leader of this project with Marta um as well and um my contribution also Shows the outcome of
4: this project as well.
1: Nice to meet you, Margarita. Thank you, and uh, Marta.
4: Hello, everyone. I am very uh, I am very pleased to be here and to be a part of this important conversation about our new book. So, my name is Marta Havryshko. I am a historian. I am a gender and Holocaust scholar. I am a Ukraine refugee scholar, and currently, I am a Western professor at Strassler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Study at Clark University. I was delighted to contribute to this important volume and my piece is about struggle for justice after the end of the Holocaust and the World War II, when survivors of the Holocaust, who experienced sexual violence during the Shoah, were seeking justice and were trying to to bring justice to their community and to, to hold accountable all the perpetrators.
1: Uh, Thank you, Marta. Thank you, uh, everyone. And again, congratulations on this uh, truly international uh, project. Um, I would like to start with the very concept that is mentioned in the uh, title of the book, uh, No Neighbors Land. And um, in the introduction, there is some reference to Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands, uh, what does no-neighbor's land stand for and what relations and stories does this specific term allow us to discover, appreciate and maybe further detail?
2: Yeah, I think that we agreed that I will start with this question. My colleagues might uh, want to add something then. Um, well, indeed, uh, the concept that we are introducing in our book has a lot in common with what uh, Timothy Snyder included in his book, uh, because of the geography, because our book uh, mainly covers what he covered, although there are some exceptions. I think that the, the territory that we are covering is larger, uh, and it's all about uh, showing that the phenomena is larger than Eastern and Central Europe, but we might discuss it later about the geography. But uh, I think that what's what's most important is that... Um, what he covers is the is the genocide the deportations the ethnic cleansing the bloodshed itself themselves which means that he's focusing on the on the violence on the atrocity uh, and then on the survivors and then on the on those who committed the violence while i think that we are focusing on what was missing in the story namely on people who remained in this of fully experienced and uh, well crippled territories after the violence ended, which means that the neighbors were gone, but also some neighbors uh, stayed. And we are focusing on these neighbors who stayed and they were missing their neighbors. Sometimes the very neighbors uh, perpetrated the violence. I mean, the neighbors uh, turned uh, against the neighbors and in in result, all these atrocities uh, happened. So what we are interested in is how all these places looked like like for these neighbors who stayed after some neighbors were gone, murdered, deported, uh, maybe just escaping, but they are not here anymore. And what happens for all these people who are still there? These communities were not totally empty. Some people stayed, stayed, and we are looking <clears throat> at what happened in these communities uh, for these people without those who were missing. And I think that we are looking at this phenomena at in various contexts, uh, which means economy, social ties, uh, memory. Uh, yeah, various contexts which formed this no-neighbor's land uh, as phenomena for the territory that we are dealing with.
1: Before we go into this concept uh, of neighbors, I would like to ask you about the challenges that you had uh, in your own uh, research in terms of this territory, in terms of those specific topics that you're exploring. Because as Anna just mentioned, well, yes, the territory is not empty. Someone stayed, someone left, and uh, neighbors perpetrated crimes against their own Old neighbors, so and uh, of course I can't but think about what's going on in Ukraine in terms of the current uh, Russia's invasion, uh, and all those occupied territories. Some people stayed, some people left. But uh, what terrifies me at the moment is, of course, how uh, research can be done in the future, if not at the very moment right now, but in the future when all the sources maybe somehow distorted, or maybe they disappear, or maybe they stolen, and so on and so. So uh, I, I would like to uh, I would like you to elaborate on how you deal with these research um, challenges and with the challenges which are presented by maybe the absence of some um, sources or maybe the overwhelming amount of the sources on the other hand.
0: Okay, so uh, maybe I can talk a bit about this. So um, of course, in in such cases, it's not like one method that that will cover. Of, of the topics and that will work best in, in any case. So we worked um, uh, on sources such as personal narratives, oral histories, um, on historical sources, on press from the past, on expert interviews with memory leaders in local communities. And only after mixing them, looking at, all oh, of these sources looking at the material that we collect this is how we can perhaps most fully grasp the what we are working on and also from my perspective um many challenges um were related to to the field work to going to these um local communities and asking difficult Questions, um, meaning what is it that my presence may trigger uh, within the inhabitants that live there right now? Because I am going to ask, I was asking them uh, difficult questions about how their families were or well somehow witnessing or committing violence, perhaps. Um, something that would be really. Um, Putting in danger the positive self-image local communities might um, have, so um, I was asking myself questions: How long should I be staying in such a community? How can I ask? How can I approach um, the topic? So, on the one hand, this is um, this would helped me to learn something about the violence from the past, but on the other hand, that would be sensitive enough to have a meaningful conversation with people who, um, who live there. So, yes, indeed, that was, um, that was challenging, and um, I hope it worked um, somehow, but the question was who are you as a researcher in the local community? So, are you the member of this community? For example, the Um, If we look at national identification, so are you you identifying as a member of this community and this is how you understand being among your own? Or maybe not, because you're researching um, something that happened in a given locality and then you are an outsider, actually. So how can you become closer to, to, how can you learn more about the? Um, event. So yes, who is a researcher when researching violence and sensitive topic? I think that was the big
4: question. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Magorzata. Marta?
4: I think that uh, one of the big challenges for me was to hear and to read stories about intimate violence. I mean, neighbor on neighbor violence, those types of violence described in works of Natalia Alexum, Jan Tomasz Gross, Jan Garbowski, Omer Bartov, and other other um, um, different historians and uh, scholars, because. Um, um, Every time when you find out the details of this violence, it's very shocking for you because those neighbors knew each other. They were classmates. They were friends. Um, They have, for example, they had some... um, common business for example they knew each other and when you found out these stories it's very painful to process to accept and to to deal with this uh with these memories um in my in my research i was struggling basically with this uh, trauma and i found that um In some period of time, so there is a light in the tunnel, uh, at least in my research, what what I saw, obviously, when some neighbors who were just observers, who were trying to avoid participating in this violence, for example, became advocates of those victims, they became their voices. When, for example, Ukraine women, Christian women became voices of those Jewish women who were violated sexually harassed and killed by other ukrainian men for example they described their trauma they described this information they described this strategy that happened to them during the soviet course and they were trying to bring justice and it was their way to to deal with this trauma to deal with with those missing people But at the same time, I support, highly agree with Maukajata. We participated in so many field uh, field research. And we struggled with this, you know, resistance, for example, of some memory agents like, like local historians, for example, uh, who were trying to, to hide some truths, uncomfortable truths, inconvenient truths about these past relations. And they were trying to, to erase uh, inconvenient memories. And it was very painful to observe how people are trying to just to hide the truths and not deal with, with the past in very you know, responsible way that is needed, especially for water in Ukraine nowadays, when we are trying to build this diverse community and respect human rights of all people in, in Ukraine and to protect human rights.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Marta. Uh, Malgorzata, you would like to uh, add something to you?
0: Yes, just, um, just a few sentences to what Marta said about meeting people who Uh, did not uh, want to disclose to us difficult um, truths about the past so sometimes um, you could see uh, or hear directly that someone does not want to talk about some things but sometimes it was this kind of invisible barrier that that you felt that um, you could learn more because you knew from other sources that something more has happened but still you cannot find people with whom you could talk, they wouldn't agree to speak. Or sometimes that everything just um that all the conversations seem to be around the topic and not directly um about this. So yeah, just, just this um to add this to what Marta said about working in the in the field.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Magusata. Um I, I would like us to um, talk a little bit more about this concept of a neighbor. And as uh, Marta uh, mentioned, uh, it was probably uh, painful to learn that Um, neighbors perpetrated crimes against their own neighbors. And I think this kind of sentiment comes from this anticipation or expectation that neighbors are good um, and they should somehow support each other and help out. But as your volume um, specifies, the notion of a neighbor can be very diverse and can be very controversial. On the other hand, uh, we also talk about new neighbors and old neighbors. However, we still apply the same term. I a mean, neighbor it's not just a new person who came to our, our neighborhood for, for for example to our apartment complex but it's a neighbor so um uh, as I mentioned, your book uh, uh, applies the subtle and meaningful differentiation between something that is more familiar and something that is new, uh, and uh, to which uh, to which one has um, yet to get uh, used. So, um, would you would you elaborate a little bit more on why you use this concept uh, "neighbor" as something that structures the entire, not only volume but in your case, your research. Uh, Sabine?
3: I think neighbor is a very complex term. Um, it is all that you just said. It evokes proximity. You think about your neighbor as somebody to go to and borrow an egg or have a barbecue or greet him in the street, but not think anything bad. And in that sense, I think the term engulfs really also the, the horror, which then... Ensues once you discover that a neighbor can be something completely different. So it, I think it really kind of it carries the um, this notion of how can this be this 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 thing that cannot be explained? Yeah, how does violent? Why does somebody you know, if just dis, by distance or even more closely, how does somebody like that turn on you? What kind of context has? developed to make this happen and this is very very difficult to explain Um and at the same time I think neighbors is a, is a term that is not new to the literature I mean there is a huge literature on violence obviously it's a huge field of study and uh, Jan-Thomas uh, Gross was already mentioned his book is called Neighbors I mean the, the book is 20 years old and he was the one who I think most forcefully introduced the term um, but on the other hand there's also um the term was also used in titles of books when it came to the Yugoslav wars of the nineteen nineties, um, where the same question was was burning in people. Like, how can neighbors turn on each other, which were of different ethnicities, but ethnicity never played a huge role and suddenly it did, and people became violent and and, and going further into the aftermath and into coming to terms with with um with what happened, um I think it's also a term that, on the one hand, describes how people continued to live in the same place knowing that this neighbor had perpetrated um, a crime. Knowing, but it's something that cannot be talked about or cannot be dealt with. And at the same time, as you said, there are new people coming in and they become neighbors. And What kind of neighbors? And there is then everything that, that Anna said initially, that... You have um, people coming in and they have no knowledge of the place, or little knowledge. So they uh, come in and they change the whole setting or they change part of the setting. They try to understand or not. You know, there is amnesia. Things are not talked about or things are not even known anymore. So I think it's a very, very complex term that, that really engulfs what we, what we try to do in the book.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Sabina. Uh, Anna?
2: yeah i just wanted to add something about the the field work and the methodology because sabina mentioned the well very important thing connected with the with the neighbors and it, it's about proximity and it's about the guilt and about and it's about living afterwards and uh, i'd like to say that uh uh sabina is the only one here who was not conducting the interviews in this uh, wider project but I was conducting the interviews, Marta was conducting the interviews and Maugolata was conducting the interviews too and I, th- and I think that we were mostly conducting the interviews in the communities but sometimes we were also reaching out to people who left because we wanted to hear the other part of the story and it was in a way easier. Because when we, you are already not part of the community, you want to talk about what happened in details because you are you're a witness. You are giving the testimony about something that is not existing anymore and you have no problems with talking about uh, violence because we are not in this community anymore. But I remember like all these uh, Polish and Ukrainian communities when you... When you were conducting an interview, and you you knew that this person (laughs) knew, but she or he was not to tell, was not to discuss this issue because she or he was still a part of this community, and she or he decided to stay, and that was the price because she or he was staying in this community. This community somehow needed to be to remain morally decent for this person that was the only way this person could live in this community denying some kind of some some part of the violence that uh, took place in this uh, community
1: mm-hmm. thank you anna azabina uh, yes i think that's a
3: very important point um to to that there is this division between those who left but who are still existing somewhere and those who stayed and what narratives this creates then from, from this very fact. And sometimes it divides families, it divides those who decided to leave and those who decided to stay, um, which is an even more intimate term than neighbors, of course. You know? so, so I think that also plays in. Um, but I wanted to just say one phrase. on. I mean, our book is called No Neighbors Lands. I mean, it, it insinuates empty land, right? But in reality, it's like you said, um, introducing the book, you said it's going from old neighbors to no neighbors to new neighbors. And this complexity is what the book is
1: about, I think. I I do have a question to all of you about how we um, understand, right, those who stayed and those who left. But before we get to that question, I would like to talk a little bit more about the variety of territories that are covered uh, in this uh, volume. Um, and um, uh, I would assume the term "no neighbor's land will have some intersections and divergences depending on a specific concrete case. And maybe uh, here it can be an opportunity for you to talk about your specific um, contribution to this volume. What are the similarities and deviations that these seemingly parallel and analogous cases might uh, help reveal if there are any similarities, if there are any divergences, and even if it's even important to to talk about whether there are some divergences in terms of how we see neighbors in different cases, or if it's not significant. Uh, Sabina? I mean, I think
3: Anna already gave a
1: very nice metaphor of this. Uh, I mean,
3: which is an answer to your question, because when I gave her a film about Piran, a small town in Istria, today in Slovenia, back then in Italy, etc., she watched it and she was thinking Ukraine all the time because there were analogies. Um, maybe you can elaborate on that. <laughs> um, but I think I think this is this is what what keeps the chapters and also the geographies that are covered in the volume very much together. They are all different. I mean, contexts are different, languages are different, multi-ethnicities are different. But then there is this common trouble of war experience, people leaving, mm-hmm. displaced people, Holocaust, mass violence, mm-hmm.
1: etc. Yeah. This statement, it just occurred to me that very often people say, well, wars are going on everywhere, or this violence is going on everywhere. and. On one hand, I think that, well, yes, this is true, but on the other hand, there is a very, um, I would say, controversial uh, response uh, to this statement because it really minimizes the, uh, to some extent, it minimizes the um, horror of what is being committed, for instance, in these lands, because they somehow are put into this overarching theme of violence is taking place everywhere. So and maybe in your volume uh, there is this kind of gesture to um, illuminate the pain that is different. Um, when in, to some extent it's the same, to some to some extent it unites all these different lands. But on the other hand, every specific case is different, and it deserves this kind of respect and this kind of attention. And, and I would say it deserves this kind of difference and otherness when compared to other cases which can seem similar. Well, I think that
2: uh, what somehow can be as a common point for all the cases that we are discussing in our book is again the very fact that the neighbors were involved because of course the violence is happening all the time in all around the world as you as you as you just uh, said we have the extremely cruel violence happening now in ukraine but look who is committing this violence the external invader right of course there is this concept of the ruski mir and so on but we, we won't go in details rather against rather, but in general generally speaking the russians are the external invaders uh, invading Ukraine, but he, what what we are discussing in our book is the violence committed mostly by neighbors, and it's more painful. it's more mm-hmm. much more needs to be reconstructed after the violence is over. I, as I, somehow I think that uh, it's easier if, if the if the violence is committed by someone from outside. Mm-hmm if you if you're if you're staying in if you are staying in my galicia in galicia that's that is my that western part of ukraine which is my field of study it is much easier if the violence is committed by the germans or by the by the soviets but it gets much worse if it's committed by the poles uh, against the ukrainians and jews or if it's committed by the ukrainians against the jews and uh, and post. It's much, much worse, much painful, and uh, the the post-violence reconstruction is much more, well, expensive in terms of efforts, in terms of... And it's also... You have less chances for the reconstruction. It's not always successful.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Anna. Uh, I would like and to... M- maybe,
2: maybe if I just can add something. I think it's it also has something to do with the fact how how multi-ethnic these communities we are discussing used to be in the in the past and how how intensive the ties between these people used to be not only in terms of uh, of uh, neighborly relations that Sabina mentioned going for the barbecue drinking coffee together or borrowing something but also in terms of economy, economical times, uh, um, I don't know, professional times, uh, all this social world that used to be there was uh, was affected by the fact that something was taken from this community by this violence.
1: Um, I would like to uh, return to that question about uh, what makes people make this decision uh, to leave or to stay in the affected um, area. Uh, And, uh, well, one of the statements mentioned that to stay or to leave is a very difficult and complex decision, and based on the research which you um, conducted, what contributes to and defines this decision and what should be kept in mind when trying to understand why some stayed and others left. And, of course, as a uh, um, uh, sub-question to this uh, question will be about how um, the um, fact that many people left uh, a certain territory Uh, affects this community um, at the present moment or in the future.
0: So, um, why do people stay? So,
1: thinking of um,
0: my contribution, my chapter, that deals uh, with ethnic cleansing. So, people stay because after the very often, ages-long atrocities, when the cleansing happens, they are uh, as memorised, and as perhaps sometimes um, expressed, recovering certain areas and taking over properties, which also uh, brings us to thinking about the ethnic dimension of conflicts and class dimension conflicts. So they are not just uh, there's not just there's never only one layer uh, um, that we are taking um, under consideration. And if um, and then. After, after the violence has happened, after the cleansing, um, in, in memories and in um, terms of many other aspects, um, I'm talking mostly about memories, since this is my um, field of expertise mostly, um, you can see how certain aspects of living are being unified, maybe colonized in certain cases when the, this ethnic uh, diversity um lacks from from the local um, from the local um, community
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: thank you maukoseta
2: i also think that we are not we are now well we are we are trying to answer the question why some some people left in some state but we need to remember that not all of them had a choice i mean i think that most of them were made to leave or they made to stay. I mean, some of them wanted to leave, but were, were not allowed to. Some of them wanted to stay, but were not allowed to. And if we look at Galicia, uh, well, people wanted to stay, but either it was not safe for them enough to stay. And that's also kind of, well, kind of lack of choice. You are choosing the, the safety of your family and not, uh well the proximity to your beloved I don't know countryside or land or whatever else. Um some of you some some Ukrainians wanted to go but they couldn't. So it's not that it's it's not only about the choice. It's also about the external powers. I I talked about how much the very fact of being insider, of being a neighbor is important but here, after, after the genocide, the deportations, and everything happened, also the external powers, uh, uh, well, um, played the role because they exposed their policies and they made people go or, or leave. They, uh, well, they somehow shaped the territories that we are talking about the way they wanted.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was not always the way the inhabitants of the territories wanted <laughs> to, to have it
4: uh i highly support the idea of uh, anna about choiceless choice because really many people wanted to stay in the in their uh, neighborhoods but they couldn't due to the state forces but also due to the intimate violence that continued um, after the war because some neighbors were still involved in some violence some Jews, for example, who were trying to to just return home and claim their properties, claim their houses, they faced pressure from the local community. They faced threats from local community. Many of them really af- were afraid of new wave of anti-Jewish pogroms. They were threats, for example, by members of ukraine resistance movement. That's why many of them really were forced to leave their communities and, you know, to leave any hopes to, to you know, to, to bury their, uh, their family members properly or to claim their property. But I want to also elaborate on the topic about those who stayed and those who, who, uh, who left, how their memories basically are shaped by this choice. Because when we compare members of those Jews who stayed in the Soviet Union and those who fled to Canada Israel US uh, UK, their memories, their narratives, very different in many in many cases, because those who stayed in Soviet Union, their memory was suppressed by uh, by, by Soviet state. We know that this official policy of anti-Semitism after the proclamation of State of Israel, and we know that uh, state, Soviet state made so many obstacles in commemoration process of the Holocaust in Soviet Union in general. That's that, that's why they memories were suppressed they couldn't mourn their family members they couldn't openly talk about what happened to them until the collapse of the soviet union that's why their memory about the holocaust was different even after the collapse of soviet union and i noticed from from gender as um specific approach that those women who ended up in the western countries where the sexual revolution was where the open discourse of the sex sex liberation was bodily experience sexual harassment sexual violence took place those women were more willing to talk about their sexualized uh, about the sexual violence and sexualized violence that they experienced during the holocaust or they witnessed during the holocaust so the social pressure uh this cultural you know surrounding and political uh, political ses- uh, settings after the war had a great impact on on the memories and narratives and remembers of those who stayed and those who fled their neighborhoods Mm
1: -hmm. yeah thank you uh marta sabine
3: which which maybe leads back to your initial question about difficulties with sources because i think it's totally right yeah that what happened afterwards and also the political settings um Shaped memory in different ways, um, depending on whether you left, which made you part of a given group, which then had an outlook of on those who stayed, etc. And then, of course, there's uh, history, politics, uh, history amnesias, deliberate amnesias, and these possibilities, these spaces for talking or not. And um, and 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 this happened very forcefully, and not only in the Soviet Union. I mean, I could. I mean, it happened in 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 Istria. People left. Uh, to Italy, and they were instrumentalized, uh, looked back to, because there were communists now in Istria and the Yugoslavs, et cetera, so so there were different, there were varieties of kind of not the same story, again, like we said before, it's analogous, but it's not the same, but it's something that relates to one another and makes also for a European post-war story, I would say, Um, so the reasons for leaving or for staying might have been economic, family, very intimate, very individual. But then what became of this decision in in the discourse might have been something completely different. And that's also very difficult then to filter down to the original decision sometimes. Um, and I'm not sure you can do that even by oral history because people's memories are shaped. Yeah.
4: Thank
1: you. Thank you, Sabina.
0: Yes, I think um, what Marta and Sabina mentioned brings us um, to the um, discussion you know, of how violence um, is uh, still present um, as a, in the memory and how it also constituted social order after the war, so after the physical violence itself. Um, it's te- it's stayed as one of the factors that is sh- sh- shaping remembrance locally, not only locally. Because I think in many cases we investigated, you can see how this um, is related to the national memory, official uh, memory, state um, state official uh, memories, and how still this symbolic violence is still being exercised. Um, in many ways, uh, in communities and groups, in even in the individual memories, because I think it is very right what's been said that you cannot separate individual memories from collective memories. So it's they are always somehow related to each other. They are, and the relation goes both ways. So this individual experience shapes uh, this remembering of violence that happened, and on the other hand, this Social, rem- social remembering of violence also influences individual stories and how they are being told um, to us, for example, as researchers who like to investigate um, this. And very often, I think, uh, we could hear some distant echoes of, um, of national narratives, on um, national memory narratives, and, um, and so on. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you, I have a follow up uh, question uh, which um, probably doesn't deal directly with the topic of um, your volume, but uh, <clears throat> I would like you to share your thoughts on how this. Um, Maybe not collective memory, but official memory can be changed. As um, you pointed out, uh, the individual and collective memory are intertwined, uh, of course. But sometimes official memory um, has more presence and has more influence, and we can observe it, well, in Russia in particular today. So uh, would you share your thoughts on how this collective memory or cultural memory uh, again, well, uh, these terms are very complicated, and I don't want to narrow our understanding of this, uh, of this, uh, of these notions. But just to make sure that our listeners also well uh, see the, um, um, the 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 uh, the goal of this question. So, how these official memory, let's say, let's put it this way, can be changed while um, doing research, for instance, that you do, because it takes time for research like this to enter this, let's say, official narrative or collective narrative so that broader audiences, uh, let's put it this way, embrace this memory that wasn't visible, for instance, at some point. So what are those steps? What are those strategies um, that could somehow... (laughs) Um, be implemented in order to open new memories for broader audiences? I would
2: say that uh, unfortunately you still need to somehow uh, differentiate between collective memory and official memory because it's it's, it's crucial to understand how they differ. Well, official memory is what, what Putin is doing today in Russia, uh, convincing Russians that uh, well, they they were the most suffering nation of the after during and after the Second World War and so on and so on So official memory is something that that is uh, that, That's a policy implemented by someone in power It can be implemented by by a state, but it can be also implemented by a by elites uh, by a by by a well by by the leaders of certain group by um uh by leaders of the community that's that that's still uh official memory while collective memory is i would say a set of and Gosha, you might <laughs> interrupt and <laughs> add or correct simplifying collective memories a set of commonly shared memories kind of some of uh of memories of the individuals so i would say that uh if your question is about how we can uh Make the individual memories which were underprivileged or not visible Enter the official memory. I would say that first they should enter the collective memory or the other way is uh, Convince the leaders who are in power uh, that they can use their power to somehow well bring these memories to the official narrative. And it can happen both ways. And if you, I will just give you a very simple but convincing example of what happened in Poland with the memory of the Warsaw Uprising. That was a very local memory. I mean, nobody except of Warsaw had this vivid memory of what happened in 1944 when the Poles rebelled the Germans. That was a local memory of our city. But then, uh, somehow it was useful and needed and some leaders and some part of the Polish intellectual elites considered it uh, well, useful and important uh, for the well, creation of the shared and more broad national identity. And it was included in the curriculum, it was included in the memory politics on the national level and now it is not... It is. It is not um, well it somehow uh went beyond this local level, although it was only a uh, it was a kind it was part of this local memory it's not anymore uh, so it can happen uh skillful leaders uh influential leaders can take this underprivileged or first silenced memory and they can use it uh they can they can bring it to the wider audience but they they need to see the reason Uh, Mm
1: -hmm. it's not an answer to your question it was quite clarifying they they need to see the reason (laughs) well and uh thank you uh anna sabina um I think Anna just gave a, a wonderful example
3: that you can't really divide these collective official and individual memories. Um, maybe the individual memories are something else, but but what you just described was uh, official memory makers taking the Warsaw Uprising to a, to a next level or a different level. Um, and um, I think why it's so difficult, or it may be so difficult to answer your question is because you posed it so optimistically, because what I'm asking myself really is the opposite. How can it be that 30 years after the fall of the wall and the end of communism and all these headings that are in our heads when we think about 1989, how can it be that 30 years later we're surrounded by big, powerful men uh, instrumentalizing and uh, falsifying history? What, What has happened? Yeah, and... Maybe I'm asking this especially also as somebody who was socialized in Germany because when I grew up certain things were not sayable that now are very sayable and regrettably so you know it, 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 there's a there's a lower barrier lower thing going on towards what can be said and who cares and 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 whereas um the Germany I grew up in was probably the Germany that was still kind of contained by. By the victors, yeah, by the allies, or what have you, I don't know. we had a we had a very clear never again narrative, and now we have twenty percent voters for some stupid neo-nazi whatever party and and Germany is maybe even more lucky than other countries in Europe where this has been going on longer and maybe worse. So so I think the question really could be posed pessimistically rather than optimistically because what has happened to? To
1: 1989, yeah, for example. Thank you, Sabina. Marco, did you want to add something to this? Yeah, so, um,
0: And I think my, my idea is not um, optimistic either. Um, so I think what might be helpful is to see the connection between collective memory on whatever level of collective memory we're talking about, local, national, or family memory even. Um, is how it is linked to identity, meaning the past or our idea of the past, of our national past, of our family past, of our own past very often, is is vital for our own identity. And whenever someone uh, would jeopardize this positive image of the past, at the same time, this is jeopardizing this, um, this self-reflection we might be uh, we might be having, and as a researcher, I would say the perfect case would be to see the past as nuanced. That is not a zero-sum game. That they were not only victims and perpetrators, but there was so many um, so many um, things in between. That maybe sometimes those who claim they were only victims, um, were not only so. This is something I'm discussing in um, in my chapter. Or maybe uh, as perpetrators, as viewed by the other group, were not only those who um, who were doing um, harm. And of course, this is the perfect situation when we might be discussing many cases as nuanced, as um, having many layers and um being dependent on many factors. but I also understand that in a very polarized social settings, we prefer um, a very clear message meaning who was good and who was bad. And of course we prefer to side with the good guys and <laughs> also to see as siding with the good guys um, in the past. Uh, but that's not always um, that's not always um, the case. So um, as long as there is a need for this kind of black and white images, for seeing um, others as good or bad only, it will be very hard to overcome also this tendency in memory politics and on national and local level, um, and just try to um, to break it down into more nuances.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, thank you, Małgorzata. And um, Anna, Zabina?
2: I think that what we are discussing now about the the, the intersection of collective and individual and official mem- memories also very much interconnected with the problem of how much the scholar, his, a scholar, a historian is responsible for what happens with the research afterwards. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's say we are researching a difficult topic we are discovering something we are uncovering a kind of a difficult past and and what happens next uh if you are a scholar are you responsible for bringing this message to the wider public i'm not sure you are but i think that many scholars feel they are responsible somehow and they at least try they make an attempt to bring this message to the wider public and uh, in our volume, we have examples of scholars who are scholars and they are active in the field of the local memory politics. They are responsible for their communities. And I, I, I just want to briefly uh, bring an example of uh, one scholar that is not with us here, Carolina Pans. Uh, she's a colleague of mine and she uh, she authored a wonderful, and maybe wonderful is not a right word, a really powerful piece on what happened in Rabka a small Polish town after the after the war about she wrote a piece about the violence committed by by Poles against the Jewish uh, child survivors absolutely i would say a uh, horrifying story and she is a scholar that is actively involved in what's happening in Rabka today because she's living near Rabka so she somehow not only is uh, researching this past, but she's living in the very community uh, where it happened. And, uh, and she's making a, an attempt to bring this story to the official memory mm-hmm. on the level of Rabka, which, is a, which would be a great deal. And it is happening. Uh, I mean, it's, it's starting to happen. Uh, So it is a wider problem of uh, what is your responsibility, what is your your role as a scholar in the society, in the community.
1: Thank you, thank you Anna for that. Mm -hmm. Sabine?
3: Yes, I also wanted to to give an example of um, one of our chapters in in a similar way, which is the chapter by Mikia Ferenc um, on the Kutschewe, Gottsche in German, which I think is... In reality, it's I think the only case in our book where there is no continuation, where the emptying of the territory was so thorough um, and what was done with it afterwards was so awful on many levels. It was closed off. It was used as partisan headquarters. It was used by the communists. It was used by the military. It was used for anti-nuclear bunkers. It was used, but, but it was because it was empty. And it has never been, I mean, you can walk through the woods there and you see kind of the, the houses being decayed, etc. But if it hadn't been for Mitya Ferenc, the knowledge in today's Slovene society would be much less than it is. So I guess what I'm saying is that what, what we do as scholars and also what we try to do in our book, just speaking about nuances and about giving voices to people who don't have a voice, I think it does make a difference. And that's the only that kind of gives also a purpose purpose to, to this kind of um, not comparative, but kind of large geographic uh, approach that we've taken, trying to show how much this is a European experience and that we should need to listen. While at the same time, and maybe Mabajata was optimistic after all, because she spoke about let's bring nuances to the story, while we're in the middle of witnessing that we're in, back in a situation where we're either for or against, yeah? you're either for Russia or against. Yeah? There are no nuances in this. In Ukraine at the moment that it's not possible to, to be and it is awfully reminding of either you're pro-nazi or against or you're fascist or anti-fascist that it's very hard to be nuanced when you are when nuanced when you are being attacked when you are and, and when you live through violence and all sorts of horrible stuff I think and, 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 and when the war broke out or when, when Russia attacked Ukraine I found myself speaking with colleagues who were also working on the second world war and we were kind of saying so what is this now we're back to a black and white situation in the world and we are we still are there is no nuance in about putin or oh, yeah. so i think it's again i'm pessimistic more than than margaret <laughs> yeah. said she was pessimistic i guess
1: Uh, Thank you, Sabina. Well, uh, I have another question which probably can be described as optimistic, but uh, again, there are all kinds of nuances which probably somehow subvert that optimism. So uh, your book also uh, provides some insights into the process of rebuilding and restoration of the area that was impacted by genocides, violence, and deportations. And restoration at least to me in the first place is about people people learning how to recover from what they lived through and what they witnessed people learning how to live in a new place on the other hand and how to relearn new environments that emerged after their neighbors um, understood broadly uh, left or after they uh, got situated in a new um in a new uh place So what's this restoration for you? Is it something optimistic or is it still some emptiness which is filled with some illusory content but something essential is always already gone and there is that kind of shadow that kind of pain that is part of it or maybe if we go back um to our conversation about this interconnection between the individual collective and official memories maybe it's already a different level of thinking about those areas which are about this narrative of going on not not of survival anymore but of just going on and persevering and
4: just some resilience Marta. Thank you so much. Uh, My chapter basically deals with this post-war period, post-genocidal period, and it elaborates on a very important topic of transitional justice. After the war, uh, every society who experienced massive abuse of human rights can just forget about what happened to them. What we observe, for example, in Ukraine, it's a huge demand for justice. People really want to sacrifice their time, their resources to collect information about war crimes and to help perpetrators accountable. Because without this, without justice, society can't move forward we can develop protectors from uh further abuses of human rights uh, society victims can't heal their wounds and their beloved the ones they They just can't heal their wounds without this justice. So I was trying to look for those actors who were seeking this justice in Soviet Ukraine after the war. And I was impressed basically by courage of those Holocaust survivors who experienced sexual violence during the Holocaust. Despite of their PTSD, what we call now PTSD, despite of their nightmares, flashbacks, despite of their fear of repressions from the state, for example, because some women really um, develop fear of being, uh, being not trusted by the state, um they really afraid of uh, disbelief they are afraid that their family members especially husbands after uh, learning what happened to them will leave them and we already know uh, know those stories despite all those obstacles women found courage to to struggle for justice and not only narrate their own experience but also to be voices of other women, their sisters basically, their neighbors who lost their life during the Holocaust and who were silenced by death. So they verbalized their pain. They described what happened to them. Described to the state and in some times to the general public. Because in case of show trials, we know that thousands of people actually Um, hear those stories, and they learned what what happened to those women, that their sufferings were gendered, sufferings of thousands of of Jewish women and girls, and sometimes Jewish men and boys. And this gendered experience was voiced during these Soviet crimes trials. But at the same time, we witness how state heavily present in this regard. We witness how prosecutors, how lawyers sometimes downplay those testimonies. They underacknowledge this trauma. They underestimate those sufferings. And in many cases, they use those sufferings as a political tool. And I was trying basically to to describe how those actors, meaning victims and their family members, their beloved ones, uh, witnesses of the Holocaust, and perpetrators themselves, play their own games during this interaction with the state, when state used the Soviet trials, these trials tribunals, to restore their uh, its power, to reinforce. Soviet dictatorship, when defendants were trying to hide their deeds or to minimize their um, their convictions, and uh, how Soviet state basically um, played with all these, you know, factors and used some stories. Uh, only some special stories, with, for example, high-profile perpetrators, to bring justice for victims. But in many cases, Soviet actors, state actors, does, just downplayed uh, the pain of of those women and their beloved the ones. So we learn how basically these transitional justice is important for not only for individual survivors but also to the community in general how it helps to move forward or basically to bury all those conflicts that could arise in, in times of new conflicts and, and uh, could basically to interrupt the, the whole communities because many uh, Holocaust survivors were not satisfied with Soviet justice because many of those, for example, who were perpetrators, who were members of auxiliary police during the Nazi period, became decor- decorated veterans because they were mobilized to the Red Army and they were celebrated war veterans with all social benefits, payments from the state, and so on. And for many women, it was very painful to leave to the uh, to the next door of who were celebrated by the the state and never faced justice. So I was really impressed by the courage of those women. And today when I am Talking with survivors of uh, Russian sex crimes, I'm often point to to those to those stories. I'm trying to give a face and hope for those women and bring those, you know, brave Jewish women as an example. And there are Ukrainian sisters, you know, uh, Ukraine neighbors who were jointly stru- struggling for the justice. You can struggle. You can um, gain. This support, and you can achieve justice even in this dictatorship, even in this, um, um, uh, even in this, you know, um, state of limited opportunities, um, uh, like it was, you know, Soviet Union. So it's it's really a very important question of of this transitional justice and what happened to community after the world war, after the massive uh, violence.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, thank you, Marta So what I'm hearing from you is uh, in terms of restoration and rebuilding after um, violence takes place it's impossible uh, if justice doesn't take place um, Yeah, Thank you, Marta uh, Anna?
2: Yeah, uh, Marta uh, has mentioned I think that the most probably the most important aspect of, of the restoration which is in fact bringing back the moral and the legal order and i think that without this the restoration the, the the restoration cannot happen but i also think that uh your question brings uh us back to the very notion of neighbor because a neighbor is also a person who is part of the structure so if the structure was damaged it needs to be reconstructed and the structure means that neighbor was also your teacher, your shoemaker, a person that you are having a coffee with uh, every morning, uh, a godfather to your child, uh, maybe your competitor uh, in trade or in, in the business, uh, there were your employer. There were so many roles that the neighbor could play, and when you, when you, when the neighbor is not there anymore, all these roles needs to be replaced by someone. And this is why uh, the part of the book that is devoted to the reconstruction is precisely about this: about uh, uh, feeling again these empty spots in the structure. Uh, it's about the restoring of the legal and moral order, but it's also about uh, about um, while well, creating new social ties between the old, the people who stayed. And the new the new neighbors uh, that arrived. It's also about uh and the chapter of uh Bartas is all about this. It's about the reconstruction uh done uh, within the uh, Roma communities that were destroyed during the war and how they are rebuilt um after the war. But also my own contribution is about the reconstruction on the very specific uh uh, level of economy. When I, well, when I started to uh, work on the topic, I somehow somehow had the feeling that it's going to be boring: economy, uh, shoemakers, traders, <laughs> craftsmen. But it's a fascinating story because all of these uh, people performed their roles. They were killed, deported, left, escaped, and suddenly it appears that there is no one you can. To choose from, there is no one you can sell your eggs on the market. There is no one who is uh, going to teach your children because all these people are gone. Some new arrived, but they it takes time for them to learn their duties, to learn how to perform all these roles. So this reconstruction needs to be performed because I would say that uh, one of the messages of our book is that uh, the social vacuum is not uh lasting forever it's going to be uh reconstructed it's going to rebuild it's going to to be sometimes built anew. but it takes time sometimes a lot of time
1: uh, thank you anna. Uh, i'm just um, a bit puzzled by
3: all the passive voice that anna just used um <laughs> because i think that this restructuring of society is also politically engineered in many ways, or at least in the the areas that I know best it was. I mean, where do you settle people who come in? How do you create ethnically homogeneous neighbourhoods or not? And who's going to live where? And what what about housing? Where are the people going to live? Who's taking these decisions? So I don't think it's, it's, it's happening. I think it's also politically made this new setting. Um, and one ch- chapter that really struck me in that front, even though it's a chapter in the memory part, um, because I didn't know that, was this, uh, and now I'm blocking the author, um, on the, on, in, Czech, in, in, in Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, the amnesia concerning the former German population, I did not know that it was necessary to be so silent about the former inhabitants mm. In order to restructure society I, I wasn't really aware of that um but it's maybe also somehow obvious or also um irina rebrova's chapter on Rostov and don where memory making memory official was such a hard thing to do um, to even talk about go um, we back to memory i didn't want to go back to memory because i think it's all part of the whole reconstructing story that then once people new people have come in memory changes again or is being officialized collectivized differently because people are different from the original ones if you want um yeah complicated
1: yeah thank you thank you sabine and thank you anna for again um uh, <clears throat> complicating this no uh, this uh, notion of neighbor and maybe it sounds like very trivial example but uh, for instance we heard it many times when people would say oh i miss my coffee i miss my cafe that was right there at the corner and uh, uh, the owners are gone the owners of the uh, um, cafe are gone but it also impacts those who stayed as well so again it's a two-way relationship. It's very complicated and it creates new memories and it creates new perceptions of our uh, environment um, as well. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for uh, this uh, um, for, for this conversation and thank you so much for complicating the uh, understanding of what a neighbor is or can be and of course your uh, volume further advances our understanding of violence and uh, perpetrators and uh, victims, and of course, uh, neighbors. Well, again, congratulations on this uh, volume, and thank you so much for your um, conversation today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you very much. Today I spoke with, with Anna Uglagala, Margarita Bukyanov, Zabina Rutar, and Marta Havryshko, editors and contributors of No Neighbors Land in Post-War Europe, Vanishing Others, published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2023. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.